0: Welcome to Theatre Voice, a podcast about performance from the v The Women's Prize for Playwriting is one of those things you feel just must have already existed and whose necessity is obvious. Just look at any main stage in the UK, chances are it's showing a play by a man theatre producer Ellie Keel thought the same thing but when she realised in 2019 that there was no prize dedicated to unproduced plays by women writers and in fact just how little support there was for women writers generally in the theatre world she decided to set up the prize herself no small feat, but in the two years since Ellie founded the prize, it's been an immense success, setting itself apart from many other prizes of its kind with the amount of support it gives to its winners. Its first two winners, Amy Trigg and Arlem, have both seen their plays end up on stages. Amy's play Reasons You Shouldn't Love Me ran at the Kiln Theatre in London, while Arlem's You Bury Me had a staged reading at the Edinburgh International Festival last year. Considering that was just the prize's first year, well, it bodes pretty well for Caris Kelly and her play Const- Assumed, which we found out just a couple of weeks ago is the winner of this year's prize founding the women's prize would be a career enough for most but ellie is also an independent producer with her company ellie keel productions and she's made some amazing work not least hotter and fitter which ran at soho theater collapsible which won loads of awards at the edinburgh fringe in 2019 and if that weren't enough ellie's just been signed by a literary agency for her first novel so here is the brilliant ellie keel talking to fergus morgan Let's start with the the definitions, because you are a producer, right,
1: within theatre. But producer can mean lots of different things for lots of different people and lots of different places. So why don't you tell me what your interpretation, your role as a producer involves?
2: I think, as you correctly say, it depends on the project. In my capacity as the founder director of the Women's Prize for Playwriting, producer means one part of that job which is namely producing the winning plays. And it means making them happen. It means raising the money. It means programming them, staffing them, strategising, all the rest of it. Um, And that's what producer means in the context of independent producing generally, which is something I also do. But people use producing as a very broad church, I think. And I, I think it basically means project management. So seeing something through from the seed of an idea to fruition, whatever that fruition is, whether it's a performance or a workshop, a sharing publication, um, recording broadcast, whatever. Um, I think that's what producing is. It's creation.
1: Yeah. You touched on the women's prize for playwriting, which yeah, I definitely want to talk about as well. And some of the other shows that you've, uh, produced over the last few years, but I, Oh yeah, I wanted to ask to begin with sort of h- how does one get into producing? Because as a kid, you look at say a theater show and you see the actors, you might think about the design, you might even think about the direction, but not many people think about producing, I suppose. So where did first of all where did theater come into your life and then where did producing come into your life?
2: Well, theater came into my life um actually through through um listening to audiobooks in the car on the way to school and on long journeys that was the first kind of performance i really engaged with apart from telly
1: what kind of thing was it
2: well we had we had an audiobook of goodnight mr tom which we listened to over and over again um, and skellig by david almond oh,
1: i remember and reading skellig when i was in maybe year 7 or something a like that terrifying they find story. the angel in the garage yeah.
2: yeah and we had just william and through that, I started to fall in love with the enlivening of the written word I guess um and I didn't go to loads of theater growing up um it wasn't until I went to university that I started to see lots of student drama and to want to put it on to make it myself and I started out as a director but we didn't have a producer on those shows, so the director did all of the producing, at least when I first started doing this kind of thing at university. And I gradually realised that the producing was what I enjoyed even more than the
1: directing. You were uh, at Oxford, right? You did German yeah. and Italian, is that right?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, well remembered. Yeah, I got that off your website. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, German and Italian, um, but obviously the plays we did were... We're
1: in English. Um, so was it sort of, what sort of thing were you involved in Oxford, because obviously student drama at Oxford is quite a big deal with quite a storied history, there's like the Burton Taylor Studio mm-hmm. and um, the Keeble O'Reilly Theatre and then obviously the shows at the Oxford Playhouse, what were you involved in there and particularly I, I suppose I guess where were your theatre tastes heading at this point as well?
2: Well at at first I did loads of published existing plays like the first play I worked on was Arcadia by Tom Stoppard which I still think is a near perfect play and I did plays by Alan Bennett and um by John Osborne and I thought that they were that that that, that was what I wanted to do um to do what I now know are called revivals um but but gradually Um, and particularly once I'd graduated and I was working in a strange job as head of student drama at Oxford University I started to become much more interested in new writing um, and ran a new writing festival and started to work with my friends who'd graduated and were writing their first post-university plays and that that started to appeal to me much more and the first play that I did in London was a new play at Theatre 503 for about four nights, and it was a new play by Michelle Sewell called The Games We Played. Then I, I really started to think this is where I can make a difference and I can add value, because not only can I, I I, I thought, um, identify good new plays, but I could work with the writers and other creatives to really make them sing.
1: What made you want to be a producer, then, were you particularly organised? Did you think, yeah, as you say, you had a particularly good nose for what worked or what was relevant mm. or timely. What do you think, um, in you, and made you a good producer and where did it come from?
2: <laughs> I'm going to need a bit of time with that. <laughs> where did it come from? Um, a desire to make art and culture and to put things in front of audiences. And although it sounds a bit idealistic, it comes from a genuine belief that art and culture can change people's lives and in terms of whether I'm any good at it or what what makes me good at it I I don't know I'm I'm quite determined I'm quite optimistic sometimes to the point of recklessness and I guess I carried on because I'd started and once I'd started good plays kept coming to me um and I wanted to do them and it's quite hard to, to say no if, you, if something lands in your inbox and is begging to be produced, which is what happened with Callisto, a queer epic by Hal Kose that I did, I, I don't know, seven years ago now, um, at the Edinburgh Fringe and then brought it to London. I just, I really wanted to make it happen, uh, to bring it to life. Um, and there's always been a shortage of independent producers, so there was n- therefore no shortage of good work coming my way and it felt like a really that feels quite exciting you know when you're one of not very many you get sent good work and you want to make it happen.
1: Yeah was there that feeling that I don't know your contacts your friends people you knew working in the theatre industry were were writing were making stuff and you thought well if I don't produce it maybe no one else will so yeah definitely, I, I need to fill that gap.
2: Definitely yeah there's absolutely that sense now and and in the before times that that there's many many more plays being written and in drawers and in archives than will ever be able to be staged to produce just a small number of what deserves to be made is a privilege to be honest
1: graduating and then embarking on a career as an independent producer sounds pretty terrifying um (laughs) yeah it was how how yeah how do you even start did you have a mentor did you reach out to people did you Mm. assist I mean I wouldn't even know where to begin in that kind of world
2: well I was pretty relentless and not always in a good way (laughs) the the feedback that I got about my sort of manner in the early days was probably yeah (laughs) probably indicates that I was a bit annoying but um I got a job with the North Wall in Oxford um, as a resident producer for their annual festival, which I worked to set up with their artistic director at the time, Lucy Maycock.
1: Um, this is Alchemy, right?
2: Yeah, Alchemy, yeah. Um, and they'd, they'd done a festival before, but it wasn't quite like this, and um, I helped Lucy put it together and really shaped it with her. Um, and it's still going now, um, five or six years later. And that sort of kept me going alongside the independent producing I was doing in London. And I also had a job for an opera company, a chamber opera company called Opera Up Close. I think it was two or three days a week. um, Programming tours of their existing shows across the UK. And that, well, it had several good outcomes. It was a bit of an income uh, that I could rely on. And it meant that I developed a very good touring network um, and relationships with theatres. And I went to visit theatres and got to know about um, how they worked and what sort of shows did well there. And that, that stood me in really good stead, basically for for, other for, for
1: that, your independent producing work. Yeah,
2: yeah, it did. Um, and it also and every job that you do that isn't quite what you want to be doing shows you a bit more about what you do truly want to be doing. Um, and when I left up prop close after I don't know 18 months or so, I really had a strong sense that I wanted to be making new plays and that I wanted to lead on them myself.
1: Throughout this period, were you trying to reach out to other people for... Because, because it seems to me like them, you must have need mentorship in that kind of situation. You must have someone to help you show you the way because it seems like a very complicated world to navigate with so many different skills and responsibilities.
2: Well, at that time, I didn't have formal mentors, actually. I had people who were more senior than me who I, I learned from and who I ended up emulating, like Robin Norton-Hale, who ran Not Prep Close, and Lucy Maycock, who ran The North Wall, and the artistic directors who succeeded her, John Horvath and Rhea Parry, I learnt from. And ev- and every workshop leader I ever, you know, worked with on Alchemy Festival or, or whatever. But I didn't have any formal mentors until a bit later in my career. And actually, that was... that's a, If I had that that would have been a really good thing. Um mm. because because I wasn't I wasn't hugely strategic in the early years. In fact I'd say I wasn't strategic at all. I just did things to earn money, first of all, no matter what they were and more or less. And I did plays that I felt attached to without thinking about why or whether they would do well, I guess. Um but no, I didn't have a mentor until I um much later when I started to do some consultancy for a recruitment company, again, again to earn money, um, I was shaping their social impact program, corporate social responsibility sort of thing. And their CEO took me under her wing and started advising me on the business aspect of what I was doing and started just mentoring me in, she's, she's not an artistic person. She's not a creative person, but she really gets what I'm doing. And, um, she became my first official mentor, I'd say.
1: So you kind of well, what would you say? Did you rebrand as Ellie Kill Productions in 2019? Did you found Ellie Kill Productions in 2019? And is that the start of you being a bit more strategic about?
2: I guess so. Yeah. Doing? Like I, I felt like I'd, I'd cut my teeth by then, and I, I knew how to put on plays, and um, I wanted to formalise that a little bit and streamline it and put it under one heading, which was Ellie Kill Productions. Yes. Um, and mm. I felt that. Spring 2019 was a good time to do that. Um, uh, and I didn't know everything that I needed to know by any stretch of the imagination, but it, but it was time. Mm.
1: I suppose as your ambitions are setting up a kind of, as Ellie Kill Productions, it's your name on the, on the tin, as they say, w- did you have an idea of where you wanted to end up, of someone that you wanted to emulate, uh, of the work that, I don't know, five, ten years down the line you wanted to be doing? Or was it still very much, I like this writer... I want to, I like this director, I want to champion their work, I want to platform their work on a kind of case-by-case basis.
2: A combination, I think. Um, I wanted to, to step up the scale a bit. And I guess I imagined back then that there would be a kind of trajectory. I mean, I set it up with Collapsible by Margaret Perry as its sort of headline piece that was part of a season of four shows that i did at the edinburgh fringe one of which i was general managing and the other three i was the lead the lead and independent producer on
1: this was august 2019
2: yes yeah and i'd set up the company in april or something to to get going with that um and collapsible had a had a a direction of travel because it had been programmed with high tide in edinburgh it had shows in high tide high tides festivals it was going to dublin it already had a london transfer um programmed to the bush so in that sense i already knew what i was doing with it for the next year or so but if you're asking me about whether i had a five or ten year plan not not really which is fortunate because it would have been kibosh (laughs)
1: it would have all gone out the window anyway. anyway
2: um and at that time, I was I was germinating the idea of the Women's Prize anyway. Yeah, so, absolutely.
1: So, so that, that yeah. is presumably something that's taken up quite a lot of your time over the last two years. The first year was 2020, is that right? Which yeah. Amy Trigg won with Reasons You Shouldn't Love Me and Arlem with You Bury Me.
2: Yeah. There were there were two winners, as you say, Amy Trigg and Arlem, and they both won first prize.
1: And then Karis Kelly has just won with Consumed for the second year um what was the thinking behind setting up the women's prize
2: well it was very simple the fact was and sadly the fact still is that there aren't enough new plays by women on major stages in the uk um and more specifically the number by men is is greater than the number by women and the prize exists to try and change that and to champion and celebrate women's creativity in the form of writing for the stage there had been and there are other organizations that do that like sphinx theater and the susan smith blackburn prize but there had never been a major prize for unproduced plays by women in the uk so that's why i founded it because i saw not only a gap in the market but I guess a a gaping gap in the sense that there was also a problem to be addressed, and I wanted to be part of that because I'd been working for five years and I'd had all these. I was still getting all these brilliant plays sent to me by women, and I couldn't do even a tenth of them. You know, I I can I can produce like one in fifty plays that are sent to me, if that. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be good if there were an institution that became bastion of evidence that there are fantastic plays by women that are begging to be put on
1: it's been really well received over the last two years you have it's got a phenomenal response right
2: yeah yeah i i would say that it has it got more support and it felt more needed than i than i ever th- thought that it would do um and in that sense it's been well it's been brilliantly received and it seems to it seems to be perceived as a great resource for writers as well as being brilliant for the winners.
1: Hmm. I think one of the key things about it, right, is that the winners get a, get a production of yeah, their play as yeah, well. It's not do. just a prize. Yeah. It's not just a label. It's your show will be produced. It will have backing, both in kind and in, and, and in, and in financial terms. We're not just sticking a label on this play. We're, we're, we're platforming. We're, we're yeah, producing it.
2: Exactly. And as with any new thing that you create with a mission statement... The proof is in the pudding. Are are you achieving the mission statement? And what we did with Amy Trigg's play, um, one of our first winners, was we got it on super quickly. Even in the middle of the pandemic, um, we managed to get it on within five months of it winning at Kiln. That was in
1: the, at the Kiln last year. Yeah,
2: yeah it was at the Kiln. Um, and, you know, it sold out and it was critically acclaimed and audible did a production of it and it's going on tour this autumn etc etc that's what the prize is there to do it's to get them on it doesn't have to be as quick as that you can't you, you can't work as quickly as that with with bigger plays you know with large cast and the rest of it um it's there to identify those plays and then work with those writers to bring their plays to fruition
1: mm. you mentioned something else i wanted to ask you about just then um which was uh yeah, that you managed to get a play on during the during the pandemic, um, which must have been a huge challenge. Just how bad do you think the last two years have been for independent producers?
2: I think they've been monumentally tough. I think that we'll see the repercussions for years to come in the sense that fewer of us will be around as a result of what's happened. Because we've been bruised and in some cases more than that. And the deals that now exist for independent producers and the amount of risk and the the it's such a nebulous word, but the climate feels even more precarious. We can't do it anymore. <laughs> fundraising's harder, shows are more expensive because the cost of things has gone up, and theatres can't and won't offer deals that that work for independent producers. You know, we can't can't work with 60% of the box office anymore.
1: Do you think, yeah, the wider repercussions of that are a a huge conveyor belt of of talent, of writing talent, acting talent, directing talent, is being shut off into the industry?
2: I think, to be honest, that just fewer people will want to do it. And I, I hope I'm wrong about this. I hope this pessimism is misplaced. But I cannot believe that there are going to be as many young people weighing up their career choices... And looking at theater and the arts more broadly as a emergency crisis pandemic proof decent option, right now, as I say, I really hope I'm wrong, but if I w- were them, I'm not sure I would do it again, or or at least at least I'd be super super careful, cautious about making sure I had other income streams and stuff.
1: Did it make you? think about the long-term viability of of producing
2: yeah 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 and i've changed my direction of travel accordingly you know i'm i'm not doing as much independent producing where i take financial risks anymore because what i realized is that that no one's going to catch you if you fall eventually there there were support systems in the pandemic right there was there were there was a self-employed income support scheme there were grants available but no one wants to be relying on that kind of thing in in a career which you've i think it's about self-respect isn't it like you you feel the relief of of being bailed out by those things but no one wants their actual job to be to involve being bailed out
1: you want to have built a financial model that works
2: yeah yeah and that doesn't that, that can't be totally wrecked by it, it by circumstances it's it's i'm just i'm, I'm trying i say I, i'm trying to be pragmatic I'm, I'm not trying i don't want to put anyone off definitely and i I, if if there are if there are aspiring theatre producers listening to this then I would urge them to, like, to come and have a chat with me, a longer chat, because there's a there's there's more to say than don't do it. It's it's simply it's simply that it's worth going into it with your eyes open. Recently, in particular, and also during the pandemic, I saw and made some great great work um, with some great great people, and particularly recently, I've been to the theatre and seen some mind-blowingly good shows and I think that some parts of theatre making and and some like audience experiences in particular have really benefited from the pandemic and been shaped and honed and enhanced and I think for better or for worse we're at the start of a new dawn and I'm really excited about
1: it. Mm, Absolutely I mean you know people learn lessons uh, through difficult times I mean Covid was a particularly difficult time that particularly difficult lessons have been learned from i wonder yeah were you to speak to a younger version of yourself or a producer that was uh or, or a young person that was thinking about going into producing today um what would be your best advice for them from whether that's you know a tiny tip that uh you know like make sure you set aside money in your budget for this to um, a great big kind of structural thing, like make sure you make friends with this person.
2: Well, to go back to what we were talking uh, about earlier, I would urge them to get mentors in the plural um, because different mentors have different fields of expertise and as a producer, especially, but in lots of um, artistic professions, you need a spread of or a broad skill set, shall we say. So I would, I would urge my younger self to get hold of good mentors sooner. Um, I would quote Dickens at them like, like a twat and say it will be the best of times and the worst of times. Uh, And I would elaborate on that by saying that everything passes and um, just, and ride the highs and lows with, with equal style, I guess. Uh, if you could possibly can, but prepare for the lows I think is and and that means have a war chest of money that's both on projects and and for you personally um and that's really difficult to do when there are no big sums ever g- coming your way but 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 if you can put put stuff aside um I would say to my younger self have something else that you can do you know i've I've tutored english and languages ever since i graduated and i've never stopped because i was about to stop just before the pandemic because i felt a bit more financially secure thankfully i didn't because i wanted to buy a new bike and if i if i had then the pandemic would have been even worse right so i that's what i'd say um keep your friends close work with your friends like Some people say don't work with your friends, but I, I just don't see why you wouldn't, you know, hmm. like, uh, like the like great art is made between friends.
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. And,
2: and believe in people and believe in yourself and don't be, don't be put off by people, <laughs> um, I'd say, and, and have self-respect and say no but also say yes.
1: <laughs> what about uh, looking to the future then? Obviously, um, Karis Kelly's play has just won the Women's Prize for Playwriting and that's going to be put on at some point this year, next year?
2: Next year, yeah, in Belfast and then in next London. Next year.
1: What else? Belfast then, London. And what else is on the horizon for you, um, theatre-wise?
2: Well, I'm moving into running the prize much more for full-time. So um, we'll be opening submissions for the next round... Probably in the summer, uh, although we're looking at a couple of new models, so that might t- might take a bit longer. to Plower touring reasons you shouldn't love me in the autumn, and we're producing the other first prize winner from twenty twenty early next year as well. So there's, there's plenty to do.
1: And that's not the only thing you're doing, right? You've just been signed to a literary agency for your first yes, novel. Yes, I
2: have. Yeah, um, a <laughs> pandemic byproduct.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well I wasn't all wasted yeah absolutely and you're really into yeah. cycling as well is that right
2: absolutely yeah well
1: you were until your bike got stolen I saw on Twitter that your bike yeah, got stolen yeah
2: from a secure bike unit at Stratford that would be my other advice to my younger self Fergus uh, don't leave bike. Your- buy a
1: bike lock <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm sure you had a lock it
2: was locked but it was in a it was in the CCTV covered unit but anyway they got it and now I've got to cycle 125 miles in a day on the first of May, on a borrowed bike, which I'm not thrilled about.
1: Oh no! But anyway, disaster. I'm sorry to hear that. It goes from bad to worse. <laughs> no. Uh. no, I feel like I've
2: been, I feel like I've been too
1: negative. Let's finish on a high point.
2: Yeah. So so the other day, I asked one of my mentors, "What would your advice be to your younger self?" Or to, I think I said to your 30 year old self actually, because that's how old I am. And she said. Just do it and be ambitious.
1: That's a great positive note. And an advert for Nike. As yeah, well.
2: exactly, exactly. Um, I, But I think both of those things are, alongside all the gloomy statements that I made, I think those are, are what I am still saying to myself. Just do it, be ambitious.
1: Just do it. Maybe Nike will produce uh, the next the winner of... Uh, They'll co-produce the next winner of the Women's Prize for Playwriting. So if you're listening from night... That
2: would be ideal. (laughs) If you're listening, (laughs) come to me. But not with the slogan, this girl can, which I cannot (laughs) abide.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much for chatting with me, Ellie.
2: Thank you, Fergus. Thank
0: you. Fergus Morgan was talking to Ellie Keel. Theatre Voice is an audio archive of conversations about British theatre. There are hundreds more interviews on theatrevoice.com. Go and enjoy yourself. The producers of this are Tim Banno and Helen Gush.